that so many of the reasons that we struggle with our sexuality are rooted in some kind of external or internal shame. Sex can be so many different things. That sexual health includes pleasure. Sex isn't just penis and vagina and ejaculation and you're done. There are ways to ask for what you want and what pleases you in a way that is really sexy. You're doing yourself such a disservice when you're pretending that something that is displeasurable to you, that is creates discomfort or that hurts you, is pleasurable. Welcome back, everyone, to Diary of an Empath. Today's guest is Dr. Taylor Nolan. She is a licensed mental health counselor, a certified sexologist. She's best known for her appearances on reality television shows like The Bachelor and Bachelor in Paradise, but is now doing incredible work in the field of sex and sexology. Dr. Nolan is also a public speaker and advocate for mental health, social justice, and sexual wellness. She's been featured in numerous media outlets and publications, including Cosmopolitan, Refinery29, and the Huffington Post. Dr. Nolan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's I got to say, it takes me a second to hear myself being called Dr. Taylor Nolan. Aww. It still is very new. And so it's... Uh, I yeah, love it's that like for a, you. Affirming, it's an affirming thing to hear yes. and also kind of like, whoa, shit, who's that? That's me. Right. I know. Oh my God, that's so amazing. And congratulations. That's such a huge accomplishment. So you know what's funny is what attracted me to your page, because I'm new to following you. I think I come, came across your page on the Explore page. I think something popped up mm-hmm. with one of the posts that you did. What I really love about your energy and your presence is that you seem to be just really unapologetically you. And Mm -hmm. I love how free you are. It reminds me of who I am. And and I think it just made me so attracted to your page and some of your messages. It's like, this is me, take it or leave it. And you know, if you don't like it, too bad. So I would love to hear a little bit about your story. How did you even get into this field? What's your background? Because I feel like you have some interesting stories and an interesting path with how you got to where you are. Yeah, definitely. Well, first, thank you for, you know, kind of saying that about my page. It's definitely been a very long experience and hard process when it comes to social media and how I show up there. Um, There's a lot that goes into that. But how I kind of got into psychotherapy and just the field of mental health as a whole um, really kind of, I think, started back in middle school for me. Um, In middle school was when I started experimenting with alcohol and drugs. And I just found that all the people I was surrounded by had just layers and layers of trauma and confided in me. And I also found myself really drawn to those people and wanting to get to those deeper places with them simultaneously watching extended family members suffer more and more from alcoholism and uh, drug addiction. And then getting into high school, taking my first AP psychology class was just like, this is why, this is why everybody should be in school. (laughs) I was like, this is Mm -hmm. what school is for. (laughs) This makes the most sense of any course I've taken in, in, uh, in school. And so that kind of pushed me to doing my bachelor's in psych, in psychology. Um, and through that worked with substance abuse, worked, um, at a halfway house and then in my master's program doing counseling, worked still with substance abuse, doing an outpatient program, but then also got the experience in private practice and just really loved that. It just felt like, you know, 
the work of being a therapist really provides you this like window into humanity that just feels so sacred and feels so unique and special. And it is such an honor to share that space with people and just really valuing the vulnerability that's there. Um, knowing that a kind of, once you fight against a lot of the professionalism standards of being a therapist, uh, you get to show up as yourself. You get to be humanized in that space and just share space with another human and, and humanizing their humanness. Uh, and yeah, I just have loved it. It's just like, it is the work of, of life. It feels like to me. We have a lot of interesting and similar backgrounds. So like you, my teenage years were super turbulent. Um, I experimented with sex at a very young age. I was experiencing drugs and alcohol and kind of trauma bonding with other people. I was a very lost teenager. And thank God we both ended up on, on a really solid path to now helping others. But you mentioned social media. And one thing that resonates with me is I have a really hard time keeping boundaries even with myself, but social media can be very, very draining. Now, I know that you had an experience where you were on a very public platform on TV and then, you know, segueing now into the mental health field. What was that journey like for you? And did you have any struggles? Are you still having struggles with social mm -hmm. media? Where does that balance come in for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so a little bit of background, I did my bachelor's in three years, went straight to my master's, did that in two years. So I graduated in May, 2016, I was 22 years old. And within a few months after that was when I got casted for reality TV. And so I had opened up my practice. I hadn't actually seen any clients yet because it seemed like surprisingly, this opportunity was going to be a real thing. And so I didn't want to start seeing clients and then be like, peace out, don't know how long I'm going to be gone for. And then I'm going to have this whole experience and all that stuff. So wanting to really be responsible in how I went about that. And afterwards, it definitely had an impact. I waited about three years after that experience to reopen my practice and start seeing clients again. Um, and, you know, th there were so many... There, there's a lot to sort through. A, I had to go through my own trauma and work on healing that so that I could actually show up helpful as a therapist. But also, you know, the shame from other therapists was something I had to sort through. I still had to work on my hours to be a clinician. So finding a supervisor, um, you know, I really was terrified of yeah. the shame potentially from other therapists. So I didn't reach out to anybody about supervision and I was hosting my podcast. Let's talk about it at the time and interviewed, um, a psychologist here in Seattle and he was great. And afterwards, you know, he kind of talked to me a bit about getting back into therapy and why I wasn't and that I should, and just really like empowered me that, yeah, I went and had this experience and I can also still be a great therapist. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, getting my practice started after all of that was one of the scariest things um, that I really had to push through shame and fear of like what other people thought of me and also just the immense liability that we have as clinicians, uh, putting myself out there in that way, but uh, worked to have a really pretty solid and informative uh, disclosure statements talking about social media, you know, the mental health field is so behind when it comes to like addressing technology and right. confidentiality and how that impacts the therapeutic relationship. So 
I go over that pretty in depth with clients um, and have ever since. So definitely having a public platform has been, has had its pros and cons, you know, it's had its trauma and it's had its blessings. And at times, yeah, that has really negatively impacted how I feel about myself as a therapist. It hasn't only really on one occasion has it impacted my clients. And even at that point, um, I still was able to work with everybody really well. And yeah, there's, there's a lot there. Yeah. I, well, you know, what's interesting is I didn't, I had no idea of your previous media history. I just saw your work and your page and I'm like, I really want to have this woman on my podcast. And so, but I think I'm really a true believer that the universe will put us on certain paths for specific reasons. And, you know, whatever that reason was for you, you know, there was lessons for you to learn there, which is, you know, put you on the path of exactly where you're supposed to be. So I love that for you. And another thing I really admire is that you're very open about sexuality and the connection of us being human and it's okay to be sexual beings. What are some common themes that you see maybe as a therapist or even just things that you see with other people in terms of what they may struggle with or some challenges that may come with their sexuality? There's a lot of things I could say for being the most common. And what all of those things come down to, from my experience, is worthiness and permission. That so many of the reasons that we struggle with our sexuality are rooted in some kind of external or internal shame, lack of permission in being vulnerable, lack of permission in... Uh, believing in our worthiness. And a lot of that, you know, thankfully through psychotherapy and even just the work of like Instagram uh, can be worked on with education. A lot of people just don't know sex can be so many different things that sexual health includes pleasure. That's a really important piece of our sexual health is our experience of pleasure. Um, You know, that sex isn't just penis and vagina and ejaculation and you're done. So really just needing a lot of education to work through the sexual shame, giving yourself permission and believing that you're worthy of pleasure. What do you think are some common misconceptions about sex and sexuality? I think a really common misconception about sex and sexuality is that it has to look one way and that there's kind of a right way that it should look, that there's a lot of expectations on it being clean, quote unquote, on it being um, this performance, right? Um, I think Mm -hmm. when I think about the things that really blur our ability to see sex clearly, I think of things like what I call the trifuckery of white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, when it comes down to even, you can be sexy in a darker skin tone, white supremacy, Um, Mm. being able to prioritize and ask for what you want and have your clitoris touched and that be the primary experience of sex, patriarchy. Um, Mm. that, you know, you need to have your vagina smelling like flowers, capitalism. Um, so (laughs) there's a lot of shoulds and expectations put on sex because of the trifuckery. 
I feel like porn too has really shifted and put in this false reality of what sex is supposed to be. Because like, if you look at, I mean, here's the thing, like I've watched porn and a lot of the porn, I'm like, I, this is not pleasurable. I don't know about (laughs) other women, but for me, I'm like, if you're pounding me, I'm like, I'm sorry, that is not something that I find pleasurable. And I feel like Mm -hmm. a lot of people, they look at it as a performance. And I was stunned at the statistics of how many women have never achieved orgasm or who don't know how to orgasm. So what would you say if a woman is listening right now and perhaps, you know, they've never achieved orgasm or they don't quite know how to let their partner know what's pleasurable for them, how can they start communicating those needs? Where would they start with that? Start with figuring out what feels pleasurable for you. Before you can even communicate what it is you want your partner to do or Um, how you can experience pleasure, you have to be clear and be specific on what it is that actually brings you pleasure. So, you know, I would definitely recommend masturbation, engaging in solo sex, or perhaps it is setting aside your partner and asking them to have sex through body mapping, right? Where you kind of go from your head down to your toes, experimenting with different touches, different, um, you know, tapping motions, or maybe you bring in a feather and, each, each different thing your partner does, you know, you kind of give it a rating and you let them know if it's pleasurable or not, or maybe it's a 10, maybe it's a move to the left, but having those specific moments with your partner to actually get clear about what it is that does bring you pleasure. And if you do know what it is that brings you pleasure and you're trying to figure out how to communicate it to your partner, one thing I like to encourage folks to do is relieve some of the pressure and lean into the sexiness of it. There are ways to ask for what you want and what pleases you in a way that is really sexy. In the moment, you can provide that guidance with small kind of nonverbal encouragers of just, that feels really good. I love it when you blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. That it doesn't have to be this clinical or really serious, you know, I'm really not enjoying our sex. What I need you to do is focus more on my clit. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it, it can be, I don't know what the relationship was, is with, with your partner. You know, maybe that does work for you, but it doesn't have to be that way. It can be a, mm, what would really turn me on right now is if you take your fingers and rub around my clit a little bit and maybe I want to taste it. Right. Like there's a way for you. Yeah. <laughs> there's a way to <laughs> do that in it when you are kind of in that sexy mindset to help yourself warm up to that perhaps more serious type of conversation. I love that. I feel like, you know, a lot of, and I, and I'm not putting the blame on women, but I think that there's a lot of people who have a hard time speaking up. And I always tell women, stop, faking orgasms because Mm -hmm. we're teaching our partners what not to do. Mm -hmm. And it's giving them that positive reinforcement that they may think they really might think in their head, oh, my partner is liking what I'm doing. So I'm going to keep doing that. So I think that you're right. It's totally important with how you say, you know, with saying something, but maybe we can shift how we say it or how we say it in the moment. So that way you're more comfortable. Yes, you don't want to be misguiding your partner, but I think almost, you know, to the core of that is like you're doing yourself a disservice. Yes. You're doing yourself such a disservice when you're pretending that something that is displeasurable to you, that is creates discomfort or that hurts you is pleasurable. That means that you're then, like you said, yes, reinforcing that that's something that you want when it's not something that you want. 
And ultimately, that's not going to get you to a place of experiencing more pleasure. And women deserve it. Yeah, exactly. We deserve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for a long time, it's like the conception was that men are the only ones that should be having pleasure and women are just here to make babies. And mm-hmm. we know we're in modern society now that that's not the case. Women are very much sexual and spiritual beings and we can feel it just as much as men do but I think it's so important that women speak up I want to kind of go backwards though because you mentioned something about the cultural ties into sexuality and I'm really curious at what do you see as the biggest cultural shifts or changes that may need to happen around sexual health and wellness Mm. honestly I think some of the biggest shifts that need to happen in sexual wellness Um, which includes pleasure and and includes health, is frankly some of the politics around it. Being able to have comprehensive sex education taught and it not be something that people get fired over. You know, I think that is one of the huge barriers. Yes, we have social media now, which can be really helpful. It can also contain a lot of misinformation. It can also, uh, you know, be blocked as well. Um, So I think being able to have things in place systemically, politically, legally that safeguard and allow space for things like comprehensive sex education, just for these to be things that we can talk about, right? I mean, it's like, you can't, you can't even say gay. (laughs) How Mm -hmm. are we supposed to be able to talk about sex (laughs) and what we want and what we like, um, or know that those things are okay if, there's so much legislation and and shame and barriers around sex. So I think we have a long road ahead of us before that happens, unfortunately. But, you know, I think there are pockets, at least, where people can get that kind of empowerment and education. Yeah, I agree. I think there's such a narrow-minded view on sexuality. You know, you see like, oh, if, if there's anything that's being taught or discussed about gay LGBTQ or anything other than the heterosexual relationship, you're grooming the kids, stop grooming the kids, the parents should have the rights. But the reality is, is there all there's all types of sexuality that exists in America in the world. And I really hope that we can get there at some point. But I just feel like there's just so much politics and the systemic views on what sexuality is supposed to be, that it's only black and white and Mm -hmm. and that's not reality. Now, I I was reading when I was preparing for this interview and correct me if I'm wrong, I was reading that you identify as pansexual. Is that correct? Yeah. Can you explain what it means to be pansexual Mm -hmm. and what that consists of? Yeah. So I'll speak for myself. I know even when it comes to, you know, being straight, uh, being queer, being bisexual, uh, being demisexual, right, that for each person, their definition might look a little bit different. So I think it's always important when you are talking about sexuality that or you're meeting somebody new, a new sexual partner, perhaps, and you're having that conversation about what their sexuality is, that if they say they're straight, it might be a deeper question of, okay, well, what actually does that mean to you? What does straight mean to you? So for me, being pansexual is it doesn't matter what their gender identity is. It doesn't matter what their actual genitals are. Um, if somebody is trans, if somebody is straight, if somebody is, you know, they or he or she, whatever it is, um, if you're intersex, none of that really matters to me. I can still experience that sexual attraction and I'm still open to experiencing sexual experiences with that person, regardless of what their genitals or gender identity is. So if somebody is 
pansexual or maybe they're starting to explore that and if they come to you and maybe they're they come from like a particular culture or community that doesn't accept that how do you start that that treatment with them or what where do they start with that because i feel like there's a lot of cultures and community that is like this is against our religion or this is sacrilegious how do you start to explore and encourage someone to navigate their sexuality if that's what they're dealing with culturally Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. Hmm. And this is something that they're open to exploring? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, if they, if they come from that background and they're open and they want to like learn and kind of unpack what is it, what it is that they have learned and go in a different direction, I think there's possibility to work there. If somebody is coming from that and they're strong in that, it's a really hard, you know, can't, it's hard to help somebody that doesn't want to be helped. Um, and so I think one of the first things that I work through folks with when they are in a place of coming from, you know, perhaps a strict religious background or having a lot of shame around sex, it's first, let's actually identify what it is you learned, right? If we're talking about sex or sexuality or gender identity, what are the things that you've been taught? What is it that you've absorbed? What is it, what is it you've seen around that? what's appropriate, what isn't, what's the reaction when it's not that. Getting really clear and actually identifying what it is that they have learned. And then from there, how do you feel about those things, right? Perhaps at one point in your youth, maybe you felt some kind of way about it. Perhaps now where you're at, you feel a different way about it. And then kind of letting those feelings kind of guide us to, well, where where does the healing need to happen, right? Where Where is it specifically that you want to start learning something new. And that's where, again, a lot of that education part comes in. So really pinpointing those parts that would benefit from education and then exposure to different things, not just in the therapeutic space, but outside of that as well. What do you think are some of the misconceptions of being pansexual or maybe even some of the misconceptions that you've experienced? Um, I think... <laughs> I think people think that you'll just have sex with anyone and everything. Mm. <laughs> um, but I think that that's the case for any sort of sexual orientation that isn't straight. And I think that right. most of the misconceptions in that come from people who are straight and have a very binary or linear view of what sexuality is. Um, and so, you know, it's that kind of like, yeah, if you're gay or queer, then, you know, any any woman you see is going to be a woman you're going to want to have sex with, right? I think we see this mostly from heterosexual cisgender men around other gay men thinking, mm -hmm. oh, well, they're going to want to have sex with me because they're gay. It's like, no, it's not. Yep. No. I think being pansexual, people definitely kind of think I would just be down for anyone and anything at any time. And mm -hmm. that is very far from the case. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. And I feel like, cause my daughter's 14 and her, 
her generation, at least with her friends, they are so open-minded. Yeah. And I feel like I'm one of the few parents in, at least within that parent group that mm-hmm. kind of accept it. And so I don't know if that's why my daughter feels more comfortable talking to me about it. But, yeah. you know, they're all like a lot of these terms. I'm going to be honest with you. Of course, like, you know, I knew about like LGBTQ and stuff like that. But there were terms like demisexual. I've never heard of those things until she started bringing these things to my attention. But I love how open minded this mm-hmm. new age group is. But what makes me sad is that a lot of the parents that are a little bit further of a generation they just don't seem to be open-minded at all. It's kind of like, oh, you're you're gay. You're going to try to, you know, molest my son. And it's like, just because you're gay and just because you're attracted to men doesn't mean that you're going to want every man or that you're going to be a pedophile. Or yeah. I saw an interesting meme the other day that a drag queen, <laughs> a guy who does uh, drag queen shows, he's like, and he, he goes by he, mm-hmm. he's like, you've never seen a drag queen on the news for molesting yeah. a, a kid. You know, <laughs> I, I thought that I'm like, that's kind of true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me sad, but I'm hoping that, you know, we kind of get into these, uh, we, we erase some of these misconceptions and start being more open-minded. Another thing I saw for you uh, that I thought was really interesting was non-monogamy. I want to talk about this because I feel like a lot of people don't understand what this is. Mm -hmm. Um, Is this the same thing as being a swinger? Is it not? Yeah. Yeah. Let's dive in. Let me know. Yeah. There's, I mean, very similar to what we just talked about with pansexuality. There's a huge misconception that non-monogamy just means it's open doors, open season for everyone and anything, and that it's just relationship chaos, right? And I mean, there is relationship anarchy that some folks subscribe to, which is kind of under the umbrella of non-monogamy. But non-monogamy for, well, first I was just going to speak to my relationship preference. So I've been in monogamous and I've been in non-monogamous and I've been in monogamish uh, relationships. And for me, non-monogamy means that there's openness and discussion about what we want monogamy or non-monogamy to look like. Oftentimes I find that within a relationship that is monogamous, there's no conversation. It's just, we're Mm -hmm. exclusive. We're together. We're boyfriend and girlfriend. There's no, well, how do you feel about flirting with with other people? How do you feel about sexting with other people? How do you feel about you know, being in contact with exes, right? Whatever it is. Um, there's very oftentimes no negotiation or agreements about what your actual monogamy is. And that can lead to a lot of conflict and unhealthy discourse uh, down the line when there's miscommunications, right? When there's conflict within what one party in the relationship thought the monogamy looked like. So for me, I think I don't believe that I am built to be monogamous. I know that I can for a period of time, uh, but I also have the belief that similar to food, I don't want to eat the same kind of food every day for the rest of my life. I'm like, so sorry, Lily, it's my cat, because I know that that is her life. Um, right. but she gets different food sometimes, but you know, it's, there are so many people and there are so many different kinds of connections that you can have with someone. And for me, that's not just sexual, that's emotionally as well, right? There's always this huge debate around emotional cheating and monogamous relationships, right? And, you know, non-monogamous relationships can look so many different kinds of ways. Yes, you can be swingers. Yes, you can have a don't ask, don't tell policy. 
yes, you can be a triad, right? And have a girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever within your relationship. You can be two couples that are partnered together. There's so many different ways that non-monogamy can look. It just depends on what you and your partner agree to. For me, it's interesting because COVID has significantly changed how I approach relationships. I lean much more towards monogamy now uh, through COVID. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term monogamish. Uh, Dan Savage coined that many years ago. It's just like you're kind of monogamous, but also not really monogamous. And to me, that's always where I go with being my priority within a, my preference within a relationship, because to me, that just means that monogamy is an ongoing conversation. There may be seasons in our life where we lean much more monogamous, and there may be other seasons where perhaps one partner is traveling a lot. Perhaps they meet somebody and they get really excited about that. Perhaps they just want it to be a one-time sexual experience. Perhaps they want to maintain a closer emotional relationship with that person. And I want my partner to tell me those things. I want to be able to tell my partner if I have those things. And I want there to be openness to the possibility of us actually experiencing those things. Because from my perspective, we really only have one life. And I think there are there are a lot of beautiful parts of the commitment, of the sacrifice, of the security of monogamy. And... In my experience, it feels like within non-monogamy, within being non-monogamish, that there are different sacrifices. There is a different security in what being chosen within the relationship actually feels like. There is a greater experience of life for me. There is an empowerment in my sexuality because it feels like there is support for me to continue to explore that and that there's uh, compersion, which is your partner experiencing happiness and, and joy for you, even when it does not benefit them, right? So knowing that my partner can feel supportive and joyous and happy for me even if I'm not in direct relationship with them at the moment, if I go out on a date and I'm just really excited and, you know, just had really good vibes with somebody that that can be an exciting thing. And I can come back home to my partner and talk it through. And, you know, it's, Oh, of course not going to work with every partner. Not everybody is going to agree to that. It takes a lot of emotional labor. It takes a lot of energy, uh, really getting firm on what your boundaries are and honoring them for yourself and being with a partner that's going to honor them. Because just like in monogamy where somebody can cheat and betray trust, the same is true in non-monogamous relationships. And people don't think that that's the case. Somebody can cheat on you when you are in a non-monogamous relationship. And that means that they've broken an agreement. They've betrayed your trust. Just because you're non-monogamous doesn't mean you can't be cheated on. So that's kind of a bit of my experience and how I approach it. But it can look different for everybody. I really struggle with the concept of does monogamy even exist? Because I am one of those people that I prefer monogamous relationships. However, I also agree with everything that you're saying. Like I can understand why people are like that. And when I ask myself the question, do I see myself spending the rest of my life with one person? Well, the romantic side of me 
says yes. Mm-hmm. There's another part of me that says, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know because I'm so comfortable with my peace. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of those people that I would prefer to have my own space, meaning that if I get into a, a relationship or a marriage again, I want my own bedroom. I even am okay with having my own house. I know that sounds crazy, but I'm so hmm. protective of my energy and my space. So I am now starting to question my own monogamy. I think I still yeah. want a monogamous relationship. But my question to you is, do you think that monogamy exists? Because more and more, you know, we have so many choices now. People seem to be cheating on each other left and right. Do you think in reality monogamy exists? I think people practice it. Yes. I think people try their very best to practice monogamy. And whether or not they do a good job, (laughs) whether or not it's successful, isn't really up to me to determine. That's up to the people in those monogamous relationships. You know, when we look at over 50% of marriages ending in divorce, when we look at the amount of options we have and people coupling up and partnering um, significantly less in these newer generations, it one would question, right? Is monogamy successful? Is it beneficial? Is it really all it's cracked up to be? Um, and I think it's fair to question those things. And to me, part of being non-monogamous is questioning that, is being able to have those conversations You may never sleep with anybody else in that relationship other than your partner, but you can have those conversations. You can have that openness to discussing it without it being a complete attack on the relationship. And, you know, I think there are just so many lies that we've been told about monogamy, right? People talk about toxic monogamy. The fact that you are open to being partnered, but want to have your own house, you can, that, that doesn't mean you're inherently not monogamous with that person, right? Like you can be in a really happy, successful, if you will, um, monogamous relationship and not cohabitate. There's this relationship escalator that we're taught, right? You fall in love, you get engaged, you get a house, you get married, you get a puppy, you have kids, all these milestones that you're just supposed to be like, bloop, 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 got them, got to catch them all, (laughs) got to catch all the milestones (laughs) on this escalator. And that's not what we have to do. Now, granted, I will say that as I'm getting older and as I'm nesting in my home, part of me has questioned those parts that I have been questioning, (laughs) that part of me can find more value in the security of monogamy. Part of me can buy into some of what we've been told about monogamy and that might change. And so I think finding a partner and having a relationship where you allow each other to change your minds. You allow time and circumstance and environment and growth and trauma to change you and to be open to that. Because honestly, I think, yeah, there's so much that we're learning through younger generations as we age in our generation. And I mean, life is so messy. We are so complicated. And so just giving ourselves that compassion and understanding that we might change. We might we might have thought we were really right about some things that we wanted and find out a year from now, 10 years from now that we changed our mind. We actually really disagree with that. We don't actually want that at all anymore. I think it's interesting because, you know, even if you look at 
in our DNA, just mm-hmm. from a human standpoint, we really weren't monogamous yeah. until maybe a certain time period. I mean, men spread their seed. It was part of survival. Yeah. And it makes me question, like, where did marriage come into place? Are we really meant to be coupled up for the rest of our lives? Yeah. So for those that are listening and they're resonating with what you're saying, and maybe they're thinking, I would like to try non-monogamy with my partner, but I don't know how to approach it. Mm-hmm. What are some tips that you would give that person? Mm-hmm. First, start talking about your monogamy. If you're already in the relationship, that may feel like a tricky conversation to start having. But the next time you have a relationship check-in, perhaps the next dinner that you have together, just sit down and say, you know, hey, yeah, I want to kind of talk about our relationship. Like, what do you think about our monogamy? Like, what does we're in a monogamous relationship, right? What does that actually mean to you? What do you think that looks like five years from now? You know, maybe it's sharing this podcast with them or, you know, a book or something or an interview that you saw and just asking, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Like, we've never really talked about monogamy as a whole or about our monogamy. Like, that's something I think I want to kind of start talking about with you. You know, I think it's also important Part of how you're you're kind of asking a bit, you know, of how marriage kind of like became this thing. And it's like, yeah, it has culturally almost always been acceptable for men to have multiple sexual partners, whether it's a spoken or unspoken thing. It's always just kind of been given a little bit of a pass where, you know, women are murdered for it. (laughs) We're we're ostracized and exiled for it. And part of that development of monogamy was not only a uh, result of, you know, patriarchy and the man kind of being the power holder in the home, the decision maker in the home, but also a bit of a product of white supremacy, of keeping the families kind of together, right? Of having that control over women and being able to keep bloodlines pure of um, a a book I highly recommend to everybody um, is Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. It's by Dr. Sabrina Strings, um, who also served on my committee for my PhD. Love her. And in that book, you know, she kind of walks you through some of that history and it is mind blowing. (laughs) And at the same time, it's kind of like, oh yeah, like, okay, that makes sense how we got here. And just because it started in those things doesn't inherently mean that we need to go against all of them now. I think there's things where, again, you go through that process of identifying what it is you've learned, seeing how you feel about it, perhaps comparing it to what you now know, and deciding what you agree with and what you don't agree with, what you want for yourself and what you don't want for yourself. So educating yourself on some of those, on the roots of some of that and examining how that shows up today, I think can be a really helpful process in determining what you want monogamy to look like for you and what you don't want it to look like. I love that. And I think too, you know, going back to what you said about how it's in, in historically, it's been inherently accepted when men sleep mm-hmm. with multiple women, but women are just ostracized mm-hmm. for it. It's like, you're a slut, you're a whore. Yeah. You have, you know, here, I was on a, a podcast and one of the questions that he asked me really bothered me. Mm. And it was the wording of the question of, 
if you do you feel like if you sleep with multiple men your market value goes down and the term <laughs> market value yes that thank you thank you i, I would have been like i, I looked me? say what I, I i i had to i'm like wait market value and i, I said is this a term that is used because i've never heard this and it makes me feel like i'm an item at a store yeah. and so my question to you is for women who are struggling with the fact that, so I'm going to be real. And I told him, I said, you don't want to know my body count. You do not want to know the answer to that question, Mm -hmm. but I shouldn't have to feel shame for that. So women who may have, you know, maybe they're exploring their sexuality or maybe they're afraid to explore their sexuality because they don't want to have, you know, a quote unquote high body count. What do you say to those women? Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of unlearning to do. Um, Mm. The body count is rooted in purity culture, um, and there's so many ways that that has harmed us. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to have a discussion about desirability, right? But there's another thing to put sexual shame onto people and to uh, really negatively judge them based on their own exploration of themselves. And I think that when somebody is judging you or inquiring about your sexual body count, that that should be a red flag to you. It Mm -hmm. is one thing to ask, you know, what have your past sexual experiences been like? Um, Have you had any past sexual experiences that you really enjoyed? And what did you enjoy about them? You know, it's one thing to ask questions along those lines, the quality of your past sexual experiences, but the number itself, people inquiring about that is simply to make a judgment on you. And it may be, you know, are you relatively sexually experienced or have you not really had sex with many people? That's one thing to ask, right? Maybe somebody is trying to get a gauge on You've only had sex with one person, and so this is might be more of a big deal to you. Or perhaps it's they are trying to, you know, figure out how they compare to your sexual experiences. But overall, I, I would encourage folks to consider that a red flag and ask the person, respond, what does it mean to you? What makes you ask that question? What will my body count number tell you about me? What is it you're trying to find out about me by asking that? Because, yeah, especially if this is a question like right off the bat, nah, that's a no. Yeah, <laughs> that term market value really stuck with the, me. Yeah. And I'm just like, why is this really? Um, and I, I should have asked him this, but I wanted to be like, is this what men or some men is that what they think? Is that what they they attribute it to as like an item at a store? I, well, I can't. To some, men, <laughs> to some men, that is that is how women are viewed. And so again, that's mm. where, you know, I will say I've been challenged a bit lately on my view about this and how I talk about it of women having more power than we think we do. Now, legislatively and historically, Absolutely. Patriarchy is a real thing. It is a real system. And at the same time, I worry and I'm recently processing, you know, how much we identify that takes away our ability to actually acknowledge the amount of power that we do have in relationships. And, you know, you have the right to choose 
your partner. So if a man is asking this and is purporting out that your value is based on how many people you've had sex with, that you are this object that is going to make them feel some kind of way or give them some kind of social status, you are in control of choosing that. Between men and women, it's like, it can go so many different ways. On one hand, yes, Mm -hmm. there's so much like the pick me culture, right? Of waiting for him to propose to you that you are choosing him, that he, that he is choosing you. And at the same time, there is also women have a lot of power in who they do Mm -hmm. choose that men do a lot of shit to try to prove themselves to women to get access, right? To experience sometimes the softness and the feminine energy, right? Or to have sex. And then it can go right back, right? To men maybe perhaps taking physical control and, you know, forcing sex, right? Where you actually don't have the option to choose anymore. So it's really complex and very nuanced. But yeah, if somebody is met with that question, to realign yourself with your worth and your value. And that's not a person you have to choose. I agree. And I I think it just really comes down to not everything is black and white. And we we might have to get out of this mindset that it either either is this way or that way. And it's just sexuality in itself. It's just so much more complex Mm -hmm. than that. I actually, I usually end with asking, you know, what your advice is to other people, Mm -hmm. but I kind of want to do something different. I have these little scenario cards. Uh, This is not sponsored in any way. I just, I found these cards. I thought it'd be really cool to do with my guests. And it asked different questions about how you see yourself, how you see the world, how you see certain scenarios. I think I'm going to pull from the self one from you. So let's just see what happens. I'm excited. And I'm going to I'm just going to shuffle and let's see what comes out for you naturally and we'll see what the universe yeah. wants to answer. I love answer. being spontaneous <laughs> and just seeing what the universe is going to throw. <laughs> yes. I love your energy, by the way. Your energy is just so free-flowing, so like this is me. Are you spiritual? I'm just really curious. Yeah, yeah. I definitely – I was not raised religious by any means um, and I think I have definitely – I. I would say very spiritual and very like, I'm sure there's a word for it. There's a word for everything, but I, I refer to, um, so I'm here in Seattle and we have a lot of mountains, Mount Rainier, also known as Mount Tahoma is like one of the huge mountains we have. And I'm like, if I could explain my spirituality, Mount Rainier is my Jesus. Like, Like just nature as a whole. And like, our earth and our universe is very much where I find my meaning and like purpose Mm -hmm. in life. And I'm so thankful and like, just, I can't even believe it's my reality that I have a view of her from my house. So like every day that she is out is just like an absolute blessing. And I'm just like life. So I do tarot. So like you remind me of the high priestess. The high priestess is like very like nature, very beautiful, very free flowing with her energy. Mm -hmm. I'm the same way. Like I'm very empathic. So for me, I need nature. I need to ground. I need my plants. I need my, my fur Mm -hmm. babies, you know, and I, I, if I I can't live in a city, so you remind me a lot of me. That's, that's good. I love the energy. Okay. so, So here's the question that came out. What if you could change one of your personal traits How would that change and alter your personality and your life? Oh, see, I'm conflicted because (laughs) the immediate part of me says, oh, I hate questions like this because it's like if you could change something that is so inherent to who you are, 
why would I want to change something that's inherent to who I am? Because that makes me who I am. And I wouldn't be who I am mm-hmm. if I changed that part of who I am. Uh, <laughs> and that, that could, that could be an answer too. Yeah. That could, that's totally okay. Yeah, and then the other part of me is like, well, yeah, you know, like there is growth, you know, there are things that you do do to try to better yourself. And that also becomes a part of who you are. So don't take it so like philosophical and just fucking answer the question. Uh, so, <laughs> so a part of my personality that I would change and how that would make my life look different. I would say patience is always something I have struggled with, which in my learning and identifying what I have learned and wanting to unlearn and learn new things, uh, is that there's a sense of urgency and scarcity that is conditioned in us um, as a component of capitalism and white supremacy that I really try to slow down for myself. Part of getting this house even for me has been like a, I'm rooting, I'm grounding. Mm -hmm. I can have a slower life. Not everything has to be done right now. Not everything has to happen right now. And similar to what we talked about earlier, of just there being so many options. It's like, There's so many options and there's so much instant gratification that we are now conditioned with. And I look back, you know, 2016 to 2019, uh, 2020 too, are really when my platform was its largest, when I had the most amount of attention and relevancy, if you will, in the public eye. And thinking now of like, damn, I think that might've really fucked me up. (laughs) Um, I'm like, damn, all the ways that that impacted me neurologically, um, emotionally that I knew at the time, but kind of seeing, seeing it differently now as I'm more and more distanced from it. Also knowing that that was all in my early twenties and just this, like everything has to happen now. And just feeling this sense of like urgency and being impatient, something I've, I've had pre all of that as well. It's a trait of my mother as well. And I think I would be able to invite in, and I think I have seen it in small parts of, you know, those moments where I am experiencing a, a shift in that part of my personality. I experience more presence. I'm so much more present. I'm not, you know, eating lunch and having a meeting at the same time anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm not like listening to a podcast and typing up an email. I'm trying to be so much more present in not being impatient. And I think through that, we experience a lot more joy. I think it's possible to feel so, oh my God, so much less anxiety. There's so much mm-hmm. less anxiety when you are not being impatient, when you are not operating from a place of urgency and scarcity, there's so much less anxiety, which leaves so much space for joy and presence and connection. And I think it's an ongoing practice. It's not something that is just like, you know, yeah, I get the question, you know, it's like a hypothetical, if I could just change it about my personality, you know, but yeah, it's, it's like an ongoing practice of mine of just 
trying to not be so impatient. I needed to hear that. Yeah. I feel like that message was for me. <laughs> so thank you. Because that's my current struggle. I'm, I'm beautifully said. Like, yeah. literally, I resonate with every single word because, man, not being present and that social media will just yeah. suck the fucking life out of yeah. you. I feel you. I, I'm struggling with that. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Nolan, thank you so much for your vulnerability for sharing your wisdom and just for being you. Like I love that you're just so open with your energy and uh, thank you so much for your time and your energy and for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This has been great.